this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it, beloved. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. 
So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case, they brought to Moses. But any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we need to hear your voice. We have heard your voice and how we need it. We bless you that you do indeed speak to us in your word. In it we hear your voice. In it we find your will. In it we find the words of life. And everything we need for doctrine and practice to fully equip the life of the saints. Please, we pray. Once again, give us your Spirit's help and ministry as we read and we study and we mark and we think upon and we meditate on your holy word this night. And we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, for the last several chapters, <clears throat> several weeks now we in our studies, God has been bearing patiently, you may remember, with Israel as they've made their way out of slavery in Egypt and now through the wilderness in those initial steps making their way toward Canaan's fair and pleasant land. God has borne with them long in their doubt and their stubbornness and their sin ever since chapter 13. And they've arrived, as we saw back in chapter 17, verse 6, they've arrived at the region of Sinai or Mount Horeb, as it's called in the text. Horeb is another name for the same place. Mount Sinai is probably the more common name by which we all know this famous mountain. But it's called here in chapter 18, the mountain of God. And it seems now as though their onward journey is going to stop for a bit. They've been going, finding these different oases, making their way through the wilderness. But now they're going to pause here at Mount Sinai. In chapter 19, which we'll get to, Lord willing, Next week, from chapter 19 forward, there's a new section of Exodus where Moses is summoned up upon the mountain to receive the law of God. Part two, really, of the book of Exodus in some ways, which we'll talk about later on. But here, at chapter 18, Israel pauses. They don't move on to another resting place, nor is Moses summoned up to the mountaintop quite yet to receive God's law. They pause here at the base of Sinai, and as it turns out, they're waiting for Jethro. Moses' father-in-law, to arrive with Moses' wife and children. If you look here at, at chapter 18, you'll see it has two simple sections. It could probably be outlined in a variety of legitimate ways, but two sections in chapter 18 for our purposes tonight. The first 12 or so verses, Moses recounts to his father-in-law all that God has done, and Jethro builds an altar in worship and in praise to God. And then in the remainder of the chapter, verses 13 through 27, Moses heeds the advice of his father-in-law regarding the work that needs to be done. There's work for God's people to do because there's an especially crucial work that God's mediator, his appointed man, Moses, needs to do. So two simple sections for our study tonight. Worship and work. Worship and work. When I was a boy and after finishing up a wonderful week of retreat at our church camp, Camp Judson, we would always finish the week with a, a wonderful worship service full of prayer and scripture and the preaching of the word of God. 
And upon conclusion, one of our counselors would usually say something along these lines. We've worshipped the living God. Now let's get busy. We've worshipped the living God. And now there's work to do as his people. It's a natural and simple pattern to the life of the follower of the living God. And the order matters greatly. First we worship. First we're brought into saving faith in the Lord Jesus. We don't work to get in there. But then... Having been born again, we, Lord willing, get busy with the mission of the kingdom and the life of a disciple. And it's crucial that the most central work not be neglected in the life of God's people. There's lots of important work that God's people can do. Much of it is very necessary. But it must not squeeze out the good portion. To echo the language of that account with Mary and Martha and our Lord Jesus. And by the way, that is not at all unlike our week-by-week Lord's Day pattern. Many of your minds may have already gone there just by connecting the dots. We worship, we rest in Christ in a special way here at the beginning of the week, the first day. It's the first day of the week. You look at your calendars, at least if they haven't been toyed with in an unfortunate manner, and Sunday is right there on the far left-hand side at the front of the week, first day of the week. We're worshiping, resting in Christ on his day. And then from there... From this first day of the week, we launch out into the work and duties and labors that we have before us in the week ahead. We begin in worship. We begin resting in Christ, springing forward from there. Worship and then work. So, to guide our study of the text tonight, worship in response to what God has done. That's the first thing we see. And then secondly, work, the crucial work which must be done. So first, let's think for a few moments about worship particularly worship in response to what God has done, as we see it here in the Exodus 18 text. We see this particularly in verses 1 through 12. Now, in verses 1 through 5 here of chapter 18, essentially we're being brought up to speed. It appears that when Moses was called by God to his ministry in Egypt to rescue the slave people, on the way back to Egypt, he dropped off his wife and his children in Midian with her family, with the in-laws. Moses may have anticipated what a grueling time it was about to be in Egypt. What a dangerous time. And he did not want his wife and two young ones around in Egypt when all that was going on. Who could blame him? But now, the fierce danger has ended. The plagues are over. Israel has been released. And now father-in-law Jethro is bringing them back to Moses. Now notice in verses 3 and 4... Attention is given to the meaning of the names of Moses' sons, Gershom and Eliezer. Gershom comes from the Hebrew ger, ger, meaning a foreigner or a sojourner. And Eliezer, Eliezer, Eli, meaning my God, right? God El, El, Eli, Eli, my God, and Etzer, help, like Ebenezer, Ebenezer. Eliezer, my God is help. It's the same word used way back, Etzer is the same word I should say, back in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created Eve. She was a helper, Etzer, suitable for Adam. Eliezer is his son's name. My God is help, because this is what God has done in the life of Moses. And these boys' names are a kind of testimony to how God had worked in Moses' own soul. I am a a Hebrew, foreigner, sojourning, reared in the palaces of Egypt, and yet forced away from Egypt, returning as yet a, a sojourner in this foreign land, 
to redeem my kinsmen, to bring them out of slavery. And how did I do it? Not by my own strength, but because God is my help. Gershom and Eliezer. One man puts it like this. Moses had been an exile and a stranger, and yet God had delivered him and showered him with mercy and saved him from the sword of Pharaoh. God has been Moses' rescuer and Moses' help and Moses' deliverer. Moreover, he had been Israel's rescuer and Israel's help and Israel's deliverer. Close quote. Well, word reaches Moses that his family is on their way. Father-in-law Jethro is bringing them toward him as they're camped there at the base of Sinai. They're soon to arrive, so Moses rushes out to meet him. Verses 6 and 7. Now, what we see here are essentially ancient Near Eastern customs. Moses arrives, and there's bowing and kissing and inquiries after one another's welfare, all the customary greetings, small talk, if you will. But then in the tent, verses 8, 9, and 10, we get down to serious business. Jethro has heard about God's work for Israel. He wasn't there, witnessing as an eyewitness there in Egypt. But major events like these were definitely going to be the talk of the town at all the watering holes in the region, amongst all the area tribes and people groups. Gossip spreads. Good gossip spreads. Have you heard what happened to Pharaoh? But now Moses gets to give the story to his father-in-law himself. One commentator notes that he tells Jethro two sets of truths. First, he tells him the good news about God's salvation. All that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Verse 8. Moses is telling him the good news. The saving work of the Lord in overcoming their enemies and bringing them into deliverance and redemption. It's the good news in Old Testament form. Moses gets to tell his his wife's father, the good news. But then he also tells him, secondly, a second set of truths. He talks about the cost of following the Lord. Look there at the second half of verse 8. He speaks about all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and still the Lord had delivered them. You see, following the Lord was not easy, as chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 have made that clear. Whether it's their own fault or from outside stimuli, we've seen how Hardships have come upon Israel, even as he's been leading them by the hand, as it were, out of slavery and towards the Canaan's Canaan's fair and pleasant land. They've experienced threats from the surrounding tribes and environment. They've experienced the creeping, brooding, corroding sin in their own hearts, internally posing threats to God's people. And yet in all these things, external and internal, God had been persistently gracious to them. What is Moses doing as he's recounting to Jethro here? Quite simply, he was witnessing to him. He tells him about God's salvation. He explains the cost of belonging to the people of God, and he shows him how the Lord is faithful in every trial and in every circumstance. Frankly, it's a wonderful pattern to imitate. Moses here, with respect and love, appropriately honoring his father-in-law, fulfilling that fifth commandment virtue from that fifth commandment that he's about to receive in just a chapter or two from Mount Sinai, nevertheless clearly explaining the work of God as God saves his people to himself. Now what's happening here? Well, really we're witnessing a conversation. You'll notice that Jethro is referred to as the high priest of Midian. Is he a pagan priest? Is that what that means? A number of scholars have suggested so. However, 
It seems unlikely that he is totally ignorant of the God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah, because you'll remember that Midian is descended from Abraham. Genesis chapter 25, Abraham took Keturah as one of his wives, and one of the children that she bore to him was Midian. So the people of Midian were descended from Abraham, thus they would have known of Abraham's God, even though they weren't of the line of Isaac and Jacob. They weren't specifically of the Hebrew people, but they were Abrahamic people. So is it possible that Jethro was like Melchizedek, a a non-Israelite priest who nevertheless served and worshipped the one true God out in the wilderness far away from and apart from the Hebrew people? Possibly. However, it seems most likely that he was worshipping the right God, but perhaps with simply the wrong knowledge or in the wrong manner. But look closely at our text. Look at Jethro's response. Upon hearing this news from Moses, Jethro has quite the profound reaction, doesn't he? Verse 9, we're told that he rejoiced to hear what Moses told him about God's deliverance. That word, by the way, rejoiced, is a rare word in the Hebrew scriptures and has been variously translated. The Septuagint, for example, that ancient Greek version of the Old Testament, it translates that word as fear and trembling. So there's more than mere joy here at Jethro's response as he hears the news from his son-in-law. There's more than mere joy. There's a depth of conviction that comes upon him. See verse 10, Jethro repeats the message that Moses has told him, and then in verse 11, he gives this remarkable profession of personal faith. Do you see it? Verse 11, now I know that the Lord, there's the covenant name of God that he invokes there, Yahweh, not just the word God, Elohim, in in the generic, but his actual covenant name as it was disclosed way back when the burning bush of Mount Sinai. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. We've seen as we look through the various plagues of Egypt how God rescued Israel and these demonic false gods of Egypt and Egypt's paganism were exposed and we saw how these false gods of Egypt were exposed for the arrogant abusers of the human souls that they always were. And now Jethro sees this too. He sees the empty idols that they really were. And the Lord wins his heart. And to top it all off, they sit down and have a meal and they offer sacrifices to the Lord in this covenant ritual. A ceremony of worship takes place. Now you may be wondering, what in the world is a Midianite priest doing offering sacrifices? Because if you're a good Hebrew... You're familiar with the law of God and you're hearing about this happening. If you're a good Hebrew, you're reaching for your sword right about now in righteous indignation. This pagan has no right to serve as a priest before Yahweh. This is a flagrant transgression of God's law. Moses would have known that and Moses would have struck this man down. Unless, of course, what's happening here is not a pagan offering false worship, but a true believer and a priest offering true and sincere worship and sacrifice to the one true God. You may be wondering, what's all this sacrificing and this meal sharing before the Lord? What are they up to in this moment? Well, verse 12 has all the marks of a covenant-making ceremony. 
What we probably, what we most likely see here in verse 12 is a covenant being made between Israel and the Midianites. Some sort of mutual peace treaty being established because we're told in verse 12 that they sit down and eat a meal before the Lord. And the closest parallel that we have to that is in Joshua chapter 9. Feel free to go on and read that when you get on home this evening, and I think you'll notice the parallels and the contextual similarities that are happening between these two uh, passages of Scripture. Moreover, given all the, all the whining and the griping and the doubting and the faithlessness that we've seen in the past four chapters out of Israel, Jethro... I think in a literary way, which is part of the genius of the narrative of Exodus, Jethro serves as a kind of foil of sorts against bumbling Israel. When God acts and is mighty to save, when one is confronted with this, the greatest of all stories of God's deliverance of his people, what should be the proper response? Doubting? Grumbling? And ingratitude like we've seen in Israel for chapter after chapter? Seeking to thwart God's purposes like Egypt? Seeking to frustrate the progress of God's plan and attack God's people like Amalek? No, no, and no again. Exodus chapter 18 would have us see, against all these wrong responses to God's saving acts, here's the right response. From the lips of Gentile Jethro, in light of God's saving mercies, In light of this news that has reached my ears about God's wondrous deeds and his right hand and his holy arm saving his people, how should I respond? Jethro says it. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. What's the application here for us? Well, certainly it should stir our hearts to hear an account of someone coming to faith in the living God. It should move us and make us long to see it repeated again and again and again in our church and throughout this town and throughout this region, shouldn't it? Let's not be afraid of having an evangelistic desire. It should make every Christian begin to cry out, Oh, God, save the lost. God, save the lost. Do in others, do in all your elect what you did in Jethro. Summon all your children to yourself. There ought to be an echo in our story of the story of Jethro. And when you see it, it should bring assurance and comfort and joy. The Lord made me a new creature. He's worked in me. He took this wicked, wicked heart of mine, this doubting, despising, God-hating heart, and he made it a Christ-loving heart and a Christ-embracing heart and a Christ-worshipping heart. Lord, I want to tell it so that you would do it again and again and again and again and countless others. Jethro... And we must join with the psalmist. Isn't that what Jethro is doing? Isn't Exodus 18 just giving voice to the injunction of Psalm 96? You remember the opening lines of Psalm 96? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Isn't that precisely what Jethro is up to here in Exodus 18? Great is the Lord. Now I know that he is to be feared above all gods. Friends, over against all the previous responses, over against Amalek, over against Egypt, over against grumbling Israel, the proper response to the Lord's saving deeds is worship. 
God saves. God saves. Isn't it wonderful? Do you ever get tired of hearing about it? God saves sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jehovah saves. That's what the name Jesus means. Yahweh saves. Oh, let us never get tired of this glorious, glorious good news. Let us never get tired of hearing it. Let us never get, te- get tired of telling it. Truly, come, let us adore him because of it. So that's the first thing. Worship in response to what God has done. But then secondly and briefly, in verses 13 through 27, we see that in light of God's kindness, in light of his saving mercies, there's work to be done. There's work for God's people to do. There is. But there's also work that only the mediator must do. And we need to think about both of those things. So first, worship. But secondly, work. In verses 13 and 14, we see how life is getting along in the nation of Israel at this point. Moses functions as a judge, as a a magistrate of sorts, among them. He governs the nation, and the people all stand around him. And this goes on all day long, day after day, apparently. You do this, you do this, don't do that, stop doing this. Here's how you should settle this account, and so forth. Jethro is quietly observing all of it, not at all pleased with his son-in-law's methodology. Verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law, Saul... That Moses was, what Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses explains, Well, they come to me to settle their disputes. So the people, it seems, have become utterly dependent on Moses for everything, for settling every detail and every petty squabble. And so, verse 17, Jethro responds bluntly, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to bear it alone. And like many a good father-in-law, he gives some wise advice to Moses. Verses 24 through 27, Moses listens to the wisdom of his father-in-law and implements this program of delegating the, the judging of minor matters throughout the nation of Israel. Look for able men who can bear some of the load and divide the work. Make them leaders over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Subdivide this massive population, Moses. Delegate. And if you do this, verse 23, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. All the people will go to their place in peace. Now, there are a couple of very common uses made out of this section of the chapter. Uh, The first that many are fond of pointing out, especially some Presbyterians, is to point to the structure of governance that Moses establishes here at Sinai, a governance by graded courts led by men of God raised up from within the community, a tiered, structured hierarchy of sorts, maybe a kind of eldership, some would say, with delegated responsibility ruling over the people, an ancient form, perhaps an in seed form of Presbyterian eldership. They say, look and see, Presbyterianism is an old as old a system of church government as Moses. Certainly. Others see in this passage important lessons for leadership. Find wise mentors, listen to their advice. That's what Moses does with Jethro. Second, identify your core business and stick to it. Jethro helps Moses see his central task and to cut out what is unnecessary. Third, build an effective team. Moses appoints qualified leaders to help him and to accomplish his mission. Now, there's value as far as it goes in both of those suggestions. That's generally sound advice. 
Do what you're good at. Don't do what you're not good at. Find wise mentors. Delegate where you can. Indeed, the language of Acts 6 later on, at the appointment of the first deacons, there seems to be an intentional echo of this language of Exodus 18 as the apostles, like Moses before them, select godly men from within the church to appoint as deacons. Now, I like any passage that reinforces Presbyterianism. I'm Presbyterian for a reason. I embrace it not because it's the most sensible or it's a nice compromise or it's an effective way to govern the church. No, I am persuaded that it's the right way, the biblical way to govern the church. I believe that Presbyterianism is not just the best option. I am persuaded from Scripture that it is the ordained means of governing the church instituted by the Lord Jesus himself and by the apostles. Any passage that gives oomph to Presbyterianism, I'm all for it. However, I'm not sure that that's the main thrust of the text in this context of the storyline. It may be a thrust, but I don't know that it's the main thrust. Israel, remember, they've come to the base of Sinai. Moses is about to receive the law of God on the mountain. But it seems that the Hebrews have become utterly and entirely dependent on Moses for every little decision. To the point where the good and the important work that he is doing in judging and adjudicating, it's crowding out the more necessary work for which he was appointed. And that's what Jethro is calling to his attention. There is the work that the people of God need to do. In this case, after Moses does the delegating, the people get busy with administrating the life of God's community. They get busy with service. First there is worship, but then there is service and God-glorifying work. That's always the pattern in the life of God's people. We're saved by faith. We worship and adore our saving God, and then we get busy serving in the life of God's people. But more to the point of this text is to better understand the proper work that only the mediator, the mediator of the covenant can do. All work is important before God. All of God's people have some work to do. All service rendered to God is glorifying and honoring to God, but not all work is the same. Not all work is identical, yes? Moses is the mediator of this covenant in this stage of the life of Israel. And Jesus is the mediator of the new and better covenant, the covenant by which we are in relation to God. And in the same way that Moses and Israel needed to understand what Moses really ought to be doing, really must be doing, we too need to understand the necessary work of our mediator, the Savior. That way we may communicate it to others and believe it ourselves. You say, all right, well, understand the role of Jesus as opposed to the rest of us. I I think I get what you're getting at, but what do you mean? Well, let me put it to you this way. How often do we see the role of Jesus in the life of a believer misunderstood in our day and age? Sure, sometimes you've got the intentional, the, the prosperity gospel false teachers where they deliberately warp and pervert the scriptures for their own agenda, their own gain. You have things like that, more egregious, purposeful examples. But more often than not, more often than not, I suspect a lack of proper instruction in the scripture leads to a whole host of misunderstandings. Many, many Christian books and bookstores bear witness to this. It's easy to see Jesus as a pathway to financial security or a pathway to physical health, to use Jesus in order to gain emotional wholeness and so on and so forth, to use Jesus to get this other thing that you really want and thus to forget his necessary core work. I love how one commentator put it. 
He, Jesus, he bears your sin. He stands before God as your representative. He prays for you, ever living to make intercession for you. He is the revelation of God to you. He speaks the word to you, the living word, speaking the word by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. He stands before God on your behalf and he comes to you with God's word to direct you in the way. That is his great work. That is the core business, the necessary work of the Savior, the mediator of the new and better covenant, close quote. Here's the thing. Praise God that he often gives us material blessings. God provides for his people and he often showers us above and beyond what we need. Praise God. Praise God that in Christ, the ministry of his spirit often does help with our own internal dysfunctions. Praise the Lord that he does that. But in the words of one man, the work of Jesus Christ is not to be your butler whom you can summon whenever things get difficult or to be your realtor when you need a better, nicer place to live. He's not merely a problem solver to rescue you from daily dilemmas, close quote. Brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus is your representative before the Father. Christ is the mediator of God's redemption and covenant. He reconciles you to God. He stands between you and the Father so that you might know him. What a wonderful figure Jethro is. He hears the saving acts of Jehovah. He responds in faith and worship. And then he gives godly counsel and wisdom right back to Moses about keeping the main and necessary thing the main and necessary thing. And that, what a lesson that is for us, the church. We, as the church, all we have to offer a dark and hopeless world is the Lord Jesus. Not our best life now. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. And we, the church, hold forth a Savior. One who gives full atonement, true forgiveness, hope for eternity, which does not disappoint. A Savior who can give a clean conscience, a full ransomed body and soul, and a knowledge that we have been bought and belong forever in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all we have to offer. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) And we say to a hopeless world, a world full of despair and pain, to people lost and wandering, to people isolated and depressed, to people lonely and confused, rich and poor, married and single, cherished and abandoned, the proud and the arrogant, and those doubting and unsure, we say to all and any, trust in Christ. There is a Savior for you, and there is a home and a welcome for you here among the people of God in every age. It's the mission of the church, the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. It's the main and necessary thing. And so, beloved, let us join this good man, Jethro, as we think on that main and necessary thing, as we depend upon Christ, as we look to him, that we might join with Jethro and say, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Praise the Lord for his word to us tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the gospel of grace effectively saves sinners, and it has saved so many of us. Enable us, Lord, to have a clear understanding about the true gospel, what it is that we have to offer in Jesus Christ to this weary world. Help us understand the necessary work of our Savior, our mediator, our great high priest. And then would you seal the truth of these words, 
your word to our hearts this night for our everlasting good and for your everlasting glory. This we ask in his precious name. Amen.